Welcome to Postcards from the Bush with Robin McConkie. It's a podcast about the nuts and bolts of life in rural Australia. The good, the bad and the beautiful. Insects are our friends and our foes. They pollinate crops, make honey, recycle waste and are a potential source of protein for us humans. Insects are everywhere. They are by far the most common animals on our planet. More than 1.5 million species of insects have been named. This is three times the number of all other animals combined. But we abuse insects. Dr Nancy Shellhorn, entomologist and founder of RapidAim, says we use precise pest control tools like a sledgehammer, wasting money and threatening the social licence to farm. I was delighted to catch up with Dr Shellhorn at the Queensland Rural Press Club to explore the world-first digital technology, RapidAim, and the role of women in science. I grew up in the Midwest of the US. I did a... Um Postgrad in Minnesota, got a PhD in entomology and a postdoc in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, before joining CSIRO in nearby New South Wales in 1999. When did you first become interested in insects? Oh, about um, at least 30 years ago. It was during some of my uni courses where I realized that insects competed with humans for food, and there was often very unacceptable, environmentally unacceptable ways to control them. So I became quite interested in the role that I could play in solving that problem. It sounds really novel, because when you think of insects com- compete with humans for food, you sort of mainly think of food waste and things going off, but it's much bigger than that. Yep. Insects like to eat the things that we like to eat. And if you think about just, you know, a piece of fruit and how long it's on a tree, there are insects that want to eat that piece of fruit you know, 24-7 for months and months and months before that fruit ever arrives to your table. It's a massive challenge. And the insect that wins out that causes the most damage to that fruit is obviously the best fighter. Uh, Yes, and often causes uh, the biggest problems. It's the one that growers have to spend the most money on to control. It's usually the one that's uh, found in many, many parts of the world, so it's super good at what it does. It costs a lot of damage and loss. And sort of what amount of chemicals are we spending on controlling insects? Well, it really um, depends on the um, pests that they're controlling and and the industry. It's not uncommon to have a grower to have 18% of their budget um, on chemistry. So it can be quite significant, but it's highly dependent upon what a grower's um, producing. You gave some phenomenal figures, the amount of chemical that is being used in the United States, insecticide. Just tell us that story. Yeah, well, so what's interesting about that is not all countries actually record what goes in. And so in the U.S., they do record it quite carefully. And um, as just a small example, um, there's about 100 million kilograms of insecticide that's applied across the U.S. landscape every year, but only a very small target Um, a very small amount ever reaches its target. And that's because, yes, uh, insecticide is used to kill insects, but mostly it's used as insurance because growers can't take the risk. You know, insects are really small, highly mobile, they reproduce quickly, and so they can end up causing a lot of damage before the grower even knows, the farmer even knows about it. And so mostly it's used, insecticide is used as insurance. And that problem of taking a precise tool and using it as a blunt instrument as it's ending up where it shouldn't and some of those fantastic tools are now no longer available in the toolbox and they're being um, highly regulated or removed from the marketplace. 
And what sort of damage can those tools that we don't want to use do to the environment, for instance, before you even think about humans eating that product? Yeah, well, I think the best example right now and um, what we see mostly in the media is around the neonicotinoid groups, mostly because of its harm on bees, on other um, insects that are important, play an important role in biodiversity, and also songbirds, and that's that neonicotinoid group. And what are now, neonicotinoids? Because well, for the layman, it's a type. Uh, it's a class of chemicals, um, and it's a very effective at killing pests. But because it ends up in places where it shouldn't, um, it's causing harm to um, non-target organisms. And that's why now, if you look across the globe, many, many OECD countries have banned or completely removed neonicotinoids um, from, from their use. What do they use to target? Which chemical? Which bugs? Well, they can be used quite uh, in a broad sense. So um, they're great for, for example, the canola industry would use it as a seed dressing. Um, and what that means is that it stays um, on the seed for quite a long time as the, as the plant emerges out of the ground. And so that early attack by a range of chewing and sucking pests, um, that damage is prevented. And eventually then that product starts to wear off. Um, as the plant grows, maybe you'd get two months of growth uh, out of out of that product without having um, damage. So that's one way it's used. Um, it's also then used directly to, to kill pests. But what happens is as bees um, interact with the crop and take the, the pollen and the nectar, they're also getting the neonicotinoid. And so that's been uh, identified as being responsible for some of the colony collapse de- disease. But also then there's secondary effects or direct effects from songbirds also eating pests that have that chemical um, so and also just the there's probably you've seen an important study that came out last year from um, Europe that looked at the massive decline of um, invertebrates insects more broadly and this is thought to be due to the wide use of insecticide and particularly these kind of groups of neonicotinoids so unfortunately now growers in in the EU are struggling to grow um, it's called uh, rapeseed there. They're gr- struggling to grow it because it's canola. so dependent um, on those products um, and the damage can be so severe. So we really need new ways of thinking about crop protection. Okay, are we using those neonicotinoids <coughs> in Australia? We do still use them in Australia. Should they be banned? Um, I believe that the federal government is looking uh, closely at safe use and um, to date the decision has been that they're still in use. So the question becomes safe use. What is safe use? Well, I think the most, um, the biggest challenge, so, you know, when I was mentioning before, um, protecting your crops against pest damage is such a difficult uh, task. And so, you know, we have a really precise tool with these insecticides, but they're used in a really blunt way. You know, the, the product is broadcast across large areas. I think ultimately what we'd like to have is keep these products in the market but use them in a very targeted and judicious way not in such a broad way so safe use could be if we have better information about where the pests are how we can then target the management and not broadcast it across large areas and then see if we're getting the control and i think that's the role we're trying to play with rapid aim and digital crop protection so you know we're kind of the first example of being able to give growers real-time information about when and where pests show up and that will ultimately help them use the tools in their toolbox in a much more meaningful targeted way. So what is Rapid Aim trying to do? Yeah so um, at Rapid Aim this is a company that we launched uh, two and a half years ago. We're former scientists from the CSRO. 
Uh, rapid aim really helps um, farmers reduce the risk of loss and cost from insect pests. And what we do is by um, rolling out, uh, we're a hardware-enabled software system, so we have these really ultra-low power sensors that we roll out across landscapes. Farmers can roll them out. And then that uh, it detects and discriminates the insects that come into the device, and that information is sent to real-time to, to farmers. And then they can see exactly when there's a pest uh, problem and where it's located, and then they can target their management and control. And the most important thing is they can then see whether their control is working. So they're not guessing. And that's really the guessing game of pest management is what has led to the broad-spectrum approach of applying it across wide er- insecticide across wide areas. When I look at your sensors, I think of the old fruit fly bottle, you know, you stick it in the you stick it in the tree, and you put a lure in the inside the bottle, yep. and then you catch all the insects. I mean, that's all you're doing. But you've taken it to a new level, and you say it's you know using the digital age to take it to a new level. What are you doing with my fruit fly yeah. bottle? We've put some novel sensors in there. And they're um, capacitance sensors. So that's the same type of sensors that you have on your mobile phone. If you use your uh, fingerprint um, ID to unlock your mobile phone, if you move uh, apps around on your mobile phone, that's all based on a kind of disrupting electrical field. Our sensor is is based on that type of technology, um, but it's a novel design. And then underneath that sensor, as they as they enter the trap, insects interact with the sensors. We've written a bunch of algorithms, and those algorithms are based on size, shape, behaviors. Most importantly, behaviors of insects. As they come into the device because they're interested in the attractant we have in there, and then we detect them, and then we discriminate using our algorithms. So we end up putting the insects into different buckets to say whether they're the insect that we're interested in. As soon as that detection happens, the information is communicated from, well, there's some edge computing on our small little device inside. The information is sent in real time by narrowband IoT um, to the cloud and then straight to the mobile app of the end user. So the so-and-so's got their app mm-hmm. on their on their phone. Yep. They're looking at it, and they see a whole lot of dots in where they've got sensors. How do they use the information that you're passing back to them? Yeah, so um, they also can have push notifications. So they can get, every time a fly comes in, they can get notified whether they want to or not. But um, So the information, what we hear from our customers, so so far we've, we've rolled out about 500 sensors. We have over 170 end users. The way in which they tell us they use the information is, um, firstly, it's the they can see now when the pest shows up. So, for example, they used to spray at night, and now they can see in some regions that it starts first thing in the morning. So they're targeting the timing of their spray. They can also see the locations of the problem. So, again, targeting where the problem is and not just having to spray the entire farm. So they feel like, one, they're not worrying as much. Um, They're not just going out to spray to spray because they don't have any good information, but now they actually have information so they can be much more targeted about what they're doing. The time of day, it also helps them with their workflow. They can start to know that they might have to spray one block and make sure the withholding periods are correct. Um, while they harvest another block. So these are the things we hear from our from our customers. Is it black box technology for the farmer? Does he have to understand it or can anyone use it? Yeah, anyone can use it. So we've specifically tried to um, make uh, our hardware super simple and plug and play. So for example, anybody could order them today. We ship you a box of sensors. You download our app, you scan a QR code, you walk out to your orchard, 
drop in the lure and plug in a tiny, you know, plug in the battery and that's it. Your whole grid goes live in minutes. So we don't actually roll out our sensors. Mm. Our customers, the 500 sensors that are out there, our customers do it. With Fruitfly, and this is what we're really talking about here, unless your neighbours have the um, good management and good control, you're just going to have an ongoing problem. So how do you get the uptake of this so that it's actually making a difference for the control of fruit fly? Yeah, great question. You know, for a lot of our globally damaging insect pests, none of them recognize borders. And so the idea that we would only focus on management at the scale of the field or farm means that we're kind of just chasing our tails. I think Rapid Aim is a fantastic example of where we can have ground-up, grower-led, area-wide management, where they can roll out the sensors across an entire area to increase awareness, to understand what and when needs to be controlled, and to also get that really good feedback loop to say our control is working. So I, I think I'd love to see more and more communities think about adopting the area-wide um, practices that they drive and they control. And we see an example of this in the in the Yarra Valley where they're really keen on keeping fruit fly out. They have used our technology for two seasons um, and it's really working fantastic for that community where the community's involved at the same time they've got um, some government money to help them help them do this. And I'd love to see that more and more. Should there be incentive for government? Because it is a phytosanitary trade barrier. Absolutely. I'd love to see the leadership in government which says that we are going to be leaders in this space, that we are going to be leaders in making the technology and adopting the technology and basically, you know, come up with the best biosecurity and pest management on the planet. And I'd love to see not sitting back and waiting to see what happens, but taking some risks. What's the problem with the government not accepting or adopting? Is it just that you haven't been around long enough? Um, yeah, it's hard to say, you know, uh, to be fair to government, um, they have to be cautious in some of their approaches, um, but only sometimes. So I guess uh, it's not always clear why things take the time that they do, um, but they, they definitely have to go through processes. So um, really, I think the opportunity here is, is to recognize that um, you can keep standard practices in place, but at the same time, you need to be taking action on change and to try to have a split strategy. You're listening to Postcards from the Bush with Robin McConkie. You come in as a biologist. How hard was it to get the engineers to come along? It's every every day of the week. I'm sure, you know, biology, that's where our magic is between biology and engineering. And I'd say every day of a week, it's it's challenging because you know engineering is a very precise um, discipline um, to do fan- solve fantastic you know use their their skills to solve solve problems in a fantastic way. Biology is ev- everything about biology is about variability, and so to bring two disciplines together like that, it's where our magic is. It's also um, very challenging because we really. Um, are are trying to do very different things, and so uh, we've we've learned to understand um, one another's disciplines, to appreciate it, and understand that's really where our magic lies: is bringing you know embedded systems engineering with biology together. How hard in Australia is it to sell the concept of digital technology, given the fact that Australia ranks seventy fifth in the world in innovation efficiency and last in collaboration? Yeah, for the OECD, that's true. Um, I guess what we really, so clearly there are some massive innovators in Australia. I'd like to see a bigger proportion of that being true. You know, there's no place better on the planet than to test 
and to develop and to test and to commercialize agri-tech than Australia. Our climate is perfect so that, you know, we don't have this big seasonal problem. We can be testing and moving, you know, developing and testing our technology all year long by just moving up and down the eastern seaboard. Because food production happens locally all year round. That's quite different than some of these massive markets like China or, or the U.S. or Europe where they have serious seasonal constraints about testing their technology for agriculture. You know, there's big times of the year when ag- there's no agriculture in the field and, and there's no pest. So we're well-placed in terms of our geography. We're well-placed in terms of our agricultural challenges. We need to be more efficient um, we know that we want to be able to meet some big global targets of 100 billion, you know, by 2030. Um, so I say that this is this is a huge opportunity, and, and we can really seize on that opportunity. Is the excuse is that we don't have the economies of scale, just in terms of population, number of farmers, that we don't develop new technology? It's easy to buy it in. Yeah, great question. I don't know. Sometimes I wonder. If we always think the experts are from overseas, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we talk about adoption of technology, but, you know, RapidAim is cutting-edge global technology, and um, it's here. It's from this country. Like, um, it's, it's not overseas. There's some great stuff overseas as well, but we really need to be um, makers of technology and makers of um, the new digital space for farming. Agriculture is super important to Australia. It's, it's super important to our rural communities where we have constraints of resources, of water, of inputs, of labor. This is a fantastic um, industry and country to be uh, commercializing and developing and commercializing tech. Is the lead not coming from the front? I mean, CSIRO is a, a research organization. I, I would doubt that this technology would have ever been developed if you were still with CSIRO. Yeah, that, that's a great question. You know, being both inside and outside the organization, so a fantastic organization to work for. Um, when it comes to commercializing technology, you know, when I was a, a, a principal research scientist at CSRO, um, you're really salamied across a whole range of areas. You're using your skills and technology to work through people. At RapidAIM, we are highly focused on one thing and one thing only. Every single day, we get up to do one thing. It's not just that you're more prepared to take risk, whereas an organisation like CSIRO isn't. It's just this, the singular focus. Absolute singular focus. And we make or break, you know, every day is about what we do with our technology. And that is, that is the focus. So we are able and choose to say no to so many things. Um, we're in CSIRO... You know, as a principal research scientist, I was really having to say yes um, to so many things because it was part of my role and responsibility. So does that mean the model for CSIRO is wrong if it's our principal research organisation or is it in the future that that blue sky research or implementation will be done by commercial organisations? I think it takes both. I think CSIRO has really um, made big efforts to try to have greater impact with their science over the last probably five years. Um, more needs to be done there. And I think um, committing to that, committing to hearing what it's like in industry and what's needed uh, should still be a, a massive priority. Um, and not just training scientists about the innovation space, but creating the spaces within the organization to really focus and lead your technology. You know, we easily, we didn't commercialize our tech until we were out for almost, I'd say, 16 months. 
we could have stayed within sorrow and possibly even moved faster um, to be a little bit protected until we really had our technology, you know, at the end point for commercialization. Um, but that, that also, you know, that space really isn't there quite yet. I think also in Australia we have a history of earning revenue from technology by third-party license agreements. And so we don't capture the value, the real value of the technology. We sell it off when it's um, pretty cheap, highly risky, but we sell it off early. I would absolutely love to see more commitment to uh, supporting the technology and thinking about how to grow the value of a, of a company and the value of that technology much further down the commercialization path before we decide to uh, either sell it or grow it. Nancy, how hard is it being a woman in innovation? Um, you know, I, I'm not always sure, to be perfectly honest. Um, I work with a fantastic team. None of this would be possible without the fantastic team that I work with. And we are a mix of, you know, I'm the oldest in the company, and then we have some that are, you know, 24, 20, actually 21 is our most recent hire. We have men, we have women, we have people from different countries. So I'm never sure um, what the challenges are. Um, I, I choose to surround myself with exceptional people. Um, and so I think the biggest challenge really is in leadership, in inspiring a group of people that are willing to every day point their feet all in the same direction and to work hard to achieve our goals. That's within the group that you're working with. But what about externally, selling your ideas, selling it to farmers, selling it to government? I mean, I think we've come a long way in terms of recognition of women and women in science, but I'm not sure how far we've got. Yeah, I do think it probably takes a few more steps. I think that um, it probably takes a few more conversations. It probably takes a few more proof points to be able to demonstrate and put it in people's hands to know that we're the real deal. And so maybe maybe that's really where the challenge lies, is it's just going to take a few more conversations, a few more people echoing the same thing we're saying to really get buy-in. Should you have to do that? I, I think it's where we are as we progress in our society and our, our culture. Um, but I, I think, you know, I'm excited by, you know, look at the room today in the Rural Press Club. I'm excited by the mix of people. I'm excited the fact that the Rural Press Club has a, um, a young, dynamic woman as their president. I'm excited by these changes. And I think ultimately it makes us for a better, a better culture and a better society. So in terms of digital agriculture, is it the future? What about chemicals versus biological control? I think um, we'll see less reliance on chemicals and we'll see chemicals used in a different way, a much more targeted way, which is important because they're very precise tools. Um, absolutely, the space with biologicals is super exciting. Like, there's a lot of exciting new biology um, technology for pest control, like the sprayable mating disruption technology for pests. So this is where they can spray on a pheromone that's long-lasting in the field that confuses male moths so they can't, they can't find mates. And what a great environmentally sound technology for pest management. It's going to be the combination. There's never been really a silver bullet. There can be some keystone uh, management tools in a system. There's never really been just a single silver bullet. But these keystone technologies will absolutely be able to come together to create some end-to-end pest management solutions. And climate change, is that going to increase the battle between food producers and insect pests? Certainly with the extremes in climate, we're going to see more challenges with food production. There are areas where we would expect, you know, when, when, when winter temperatures are warmer, that just allows pest populations to continue to um, increase faster. So 
those, there will be some real challenges. Also, just with global trade and the way in which um, we either move pests and disease around or they're able to get here on their own volition, these will continue to be big challenges for us to tackle. And fall worm, when you, army fall worm, when are you going to get a, on yeah. top of that one? The fall army worm um, crossed the Australian border, I guess it was about a year ago. Uh, actually, it was in maybe January of, of 2020. Um, it has now reached Tasmania. Uh, it is causing massive devastation for corn crops. Uh, we're super excited to be working on that, and we hope to have our product, um, we'll have our MVP prototypes for fall armyworm early detection uh, in the field by September, and we hope to be fully commercial and scalable by June 2022. And it was an absolute pleasure to chat with Dr. Nancy Shellhorn at the Rural Press Club in Brisbane. No now, act early. We take the guesswork out of pest management. That's the motto or the ethos of Rapid Aim. You've been listening to Postcards from the Bush with Robin McConkie. Subscribe on your favourite podcast app and leave me a review. Music was composed and presented by Luke Aidney. Mm-hmm.